0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now. Use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good boys and girls, Two Footed Podcast. Today is Wednesday, it is the 9th of August, hope you're all well. Today, we're getting nostalgic because what else would you do over Wednesday before the season begins? So, today's topic, one of my all-time favourite, no actually, flat out my all-time favourite international team, my favourite era of international football and the club side that I think inspired that national team and the golden era of that club. We are talking about Germany circa 1996, and we're talking about the Borussia Dortmund team that was so vital to providing so many of that players. So we're going to start our little adventure here. The 1990 World Cup, where West Germany, before the reunification, win the World Cup under Franz Beckenbauer. The German squad for that tournament, Bodo Wildner, Stefan Reuter, Andreas Bremer, Jürgen Kohler, Klaus Agenthaler, Guido Buchwald, Pierre Litbarski, Thomas Hassler, Rudy Voller, Lothar Matthias, Frank Mill, Raymond Allman, Karl-Heinz Riedle, Thomas Bertholdt, Uwe Ben, Paul Steiner, Andreas Muller, Jürgen Klinsmann, Hans Pflüger, Olaf Tone, Gunter Hermann, and Andreas Kopke. Some undeniable legends in that team. Kohler, one of the greatest defenders of all time. The same could be said for Klaus Agenthaler. Thomas Hassler, <clears throat> Pierre Litbarski, Lothar Mateus, Andreas Muller, Olaf Tone. These are great, great midfield players. Rudy Voller, Caroline Zriedland, of course. Jürgen Klinsmann, world-class forwards. And obviously Bodo Ilgner in goal was was just incredible. You also had Stefan Reuter and Andreas Bremer, who were just tremendous fullbacks. This was a fantastically balanced squad. Cologne had four players in the squad. You have Bayern with five players in the squad. There's a a duo from Dortmund, Frank Mill and Andreas Muller, who'd just gone back there. Um, You had a couple from Werder Bremen. You had a few playing in Italy. You had Bremer, Matthias and Klinsmann. Inter had tried to replicate what AC Milan had done with their three Dutch players by signing three outstanding German players, Klinsmann was one of the best forward players in the world. Matthias is one of the greatest midfielders of all time, and Andy Bremer was a brilliant fullback, right-footed but preferred to play left-back. Funnily enough, as I've said before, two of, in my view, the the best left-backs ever, the best left-back and the best defender of all time, Paolo Maldini, right-footed. And Dennis Irwin, the best right the best left back the Premier League has seen, also right footed. Andy Bremer was another that fit into that category. Um, in that World Cup, the Germans were in Group D with Yugoslavia, phenomenal Yugoslavian team, Colombia and the United Arab Emirates. They beat Yugoslavia 4-1 in their first game. They beat the United Arab Emirates 5-1 in the second game. And then rotating heavily for the last game of the group stage, they draw 1-1 with Colombia. uh, Last-minute goal by Freddie Rincon, who, if you remember Freddie Rincon, he was a hell of a player. So that sent them through top of the group into the knockout stages where they took on the Netherlands. And this game, unfortunately, descended into turmoil, farce, really. A couple of collisions between a couple of players and a couple of arguments broke out. And Frank Reichardt, who was at the peak of his powers, one of, again, one of the great midfielders of all time, but playing in defence, him and Rudy Voller just got into this stupid back and forth and started spitting at each other and both of them ended, ended up getting sent off and it kind of spoiled the game but the Germans go through they win 2-1 Klinsmann and Bremer get the goals uh Koeman scores a late penalty for the Netherlands next they take on Czechoslovakia and again a really good Czechoslovakia team and you know before these countries got split up and obviously the, it was the right thing for the the people of these countries to split them up. But Czechoslovakia had a hell of a team. Yugoslavia had an unbelievably talented squad. I I genuinely believe Yugoslavia could have gone on and won major, major honours over the years. If you look at what Croatia have been able to do, and obviously Serbia always have a lot of talent. Bosnia have a lot of talent. You've got Slovenia have had a couple of good runs. Um, Montenegro talent there, Macedonia, talent there, so all things considered for the good of the people certainly better off the way it is now I assume not to not to delve too far into it but for the good of football, uh, might have been better the way it was, anyway the Germans go on and beat the Czech uh, the Czechs 1-0, a Lothar Mateus penalty, now having scored heavily in the first two games We now have three games where they've kind of struggled a little bit to score. Into the semi-final and they face England. And this is a really good England team with Barnes and Waddle and Lineker and Beardsley and David Platt and Gaza. You've got Mark Wright, Tony Adams, Des Walker, Stuart Pearce, Paul Parker. A very old Peter Shilton in goal was probably the weak link in this team. And Andy Bremer puts uh, puts the Germans 1-0 up on 60. His free kick takes a massive deflection and loops over. It hit Paul Parker on the thigh. No, the the calf, rather. As he broke to try and block it, it hit him on the calf and looped. And Shilton just didn't have the agility to deal with it. But England got back into it on 80 with a Gary Lineker goal. No deciding it in extra time, so he went to penalties. Lineker scores... Ramos scores, Beardsley scores, Matthias scores, Platt scores, Riedler scores, Stuart Pearce misses, drives it hard down the middle, Bodo Wildner, long goalkeeper, six three six four, just gets his legs in the way and saves it. Olaf Tone scores, and then obviously Chris Waddle steps up and blazes his penalty. A mile over the bar and obviously Chris Wad- uh, Waddle would go on and miss a penalty in a Champions League final shootout as well. And unfortunately for Chris Waddle, those two moments have kind of coloured his career because Chris Waddle is one of the most talented English players of all time. But unfortunately, in the two biggest moments of his career. He missed massive penalties Am I wrong about that? Maybe he didn't take a penalty in the European Cup final. They lost to Red Star. It seems like he didn't take one. I was of the opinion and of the memory that he did, but it looks like he didn't. Um, but he, like, he was great for Marseille. He'd been incredible for Spurs before that. Marseille paid $4.5 for him in 1989. It was the third highest fee ever paid for a player, which will tell you how talented he was. He was 29 at that point as well. He'd obviously made his name at Newcastle, gone on to Spurs. Marseille, Sheffield Wednesday, when he came back to England, he was still really good. And then he just sort of knocked about for a long time. Falkirk, Bradford, Sunderland, Burnley. He was player manager there. Uh, Torquay works uptown Glapwell, and Stockbridge Park steals. Played up until he was 42. Uh, 62 caps for England. Should have won a lot more. But again, like I say, his career is coloured by, it is that one penalty miss then, rather than two. Um, so Germany go on and they face Argentina in the final. And again, it's a World Cup final that is more infamous than famous. Argentina have two players sent off. Pedro Monzon becomes the first player ever to be sent off in a World Cup final. And Gustavo Dezotti is sent off with three minutes to go as the Argentines just lose their tempers, really. Now, the penalty that was given, which Andreas Bremer scored in the 85th minute, is one of the most blatant dives you'll ever see. Um, the German team in that final, you had Bodo Wilder in goal, you had a back three of Buchwald, Kohler and Agenthaler, Thomas Bertholt, another great defender, as a wing back, Andreas Bremer on the other side, Hassler, Mateus and the in midfield, and Rudy Voller, and Jurgen Klinsmann up front, Armin, Reuter, Bein, Tone, and Riedler as the subs router came on for Bertholdt with about fifteen minutes left, twenty minutes left. Um the Germans deserve to win the final. There's no question. But Maradona had almost single-handedly dragged that Argentina team to the final. Him and Sergio goicochea were the real stories of that Argentine team. And when Bremer scored, the whole the line was goicochea is beaten at last because Argentina had relied on penalty shootouts to get this far and, and Sergio goicochea who hadn't started the tournament as the number one. Um he'd come in due to an injury after this first or second game and made himself a hero. A shame that it ended like that because it, it promised to be a great final. It was a repeat of the final four years earlier. It was the the third straight final for the Germans. And they lost, obviously, in 82, they lost to Italy. In 86, they'd lost to Argentina. And in 86, they'd actually they taken a, a strange route of asking Lothar Mateus to man-mark Diego Maradona, and it just didn't play into his strengths, and it took him out of the play in terms of what he could offer on the ball, so it was a bad use of him. In this final, they didn't do anything foolish. They let Mateus sit at the base of the midfield, let Hassler and Lebarski roam forward, push the, the wing-backs forward when necessary, but they kept a very compact unit. And they would go on and they would win the World Cup. And they would deserve to win said World Cup. Um, We go now to Euro 92. Bertie Volks has taken over as manager of the German national team. And they finish second in their group. They draw with the Commonwealth of Independent States. Now, this was the team that was the transition from the USSR to Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. Um, this was still a very talented team and they'd obviously performed quite well at the 88 euros and were expected to be, a, you know, a, a bit of an issue for teams here. So Germany draw one, one with them. Thomas Hasler scores the only goal. Uh, they beat Scotland 2-0, goals by Karl-Heinz Riedler and Stefan Effenberg. And then they lose to the Netherlands, 3-1. Frank Reichard, Richard Vichka, Robert Vichka, not Richard, the, the brother, and Dennis Burkamp scoring the goals for the Netherlands. Uh, Klinsman with the only goal for the Germans. But they would qualify because only eight teams were in this competition. So the top two of each group come out. So coming out of this group, you get the Netherlands and you get Germany. Out of the other group, you got Sweden and Denmark, with both France and England dumped out in major surprises because France and England were expected to win that group comfortably. In the semi-finals, the Germans would beat Sweden 3-2. Thomas Hasler scored and Karl-Heinz Riedler got two. Thomas Brolin and Kenneth Anderson got the goals for the Swedes. So Germany go to the final, and despite not having looked anywhere near their best, they are heavy favourites going into this final, where they will face Denmark. Denmark had beaten the Netherlands on penalties. The Netherlands were favoured to win it, and repeat as winners, having won it in 88. But unfortunately for the Netherlands, they just couldn't find a way to break down the Danes. It was 2-2 in normal time, 2-2 after extra time. And it took a late goal for the Netherlands to even get it to extra time, late Frank Rijkaard goal. But Van Basten missed his penalty. All five Danes scored and Denmark went on to the final. And in that final, Denmark beat the Germans 2-0. Uh, Jensen and Vilfort with the goals. And this was seen as an enormous embarrassment for the Germans, having won the World Cup, going up against a team that, didn't even know they were going to be in the competition. Yugoslavia were meant to be in the competition and got thrown out at the last minute. And the Danes, the players were on the holidays. They were on the beach. Some of them were out of shape. They get a phone call. You're playing in the Euros. Get on a plane. And they've all got to head to Sweden to play in this competition. Michael Laudrup, their best player, didn't even turn up. His brother did, and his brother was excellent in the tournament. Uh, the German team for the final, Ilgner, Buchwald, so no Agenthaler, Kohler, Helmer. Thomas Helmer comes in. Stefan Reuter is in, in place of Thomas Bertholdt. You still have Andy Bremer. <clears throat> Big changes in midfield. No low time at You've got. Matthias Zammer, Stefan Effenberg, and Thomas Hassler. Now, obviously, Zammer and Effenberg would, would really make their names later, but this was the first kind of sign of them um, in, an, in a major situation on the international stage. Uh, Hassler behind Riedler and Klinsmann, no Rudy Voller. Um, yeah, so major embarrassment for the Germans. Out they go. And a lot of criticism starts getting aim- aimed at Bertie volks But come the 94 World Cup, Bertie volks is still in charge. Uh, there's a lot of familiar names in this squad. Lothar Mateus is notably back, age 33. The infamously named Stefan Kuntz is in the team. A lot of good players. Ilgner, Bremer, Kohler, Helmer, Buchfeldt, Muller, Hassler, Riedler, Matthias, Andreas Kopke, Rudy Voller is back in the squad. Thomas Berthold is back in the squad. Zamer, Wagner, Klinsmann, Ulf Kirsten, decent player. Stefan Effenberg and Mario Basler, another outstanding young midfielder. Um, at this point, 25, so not young anymore. But they've got Basler, Effenberg, Zammer, and Muller, who are kind of this new core that are expected to lead the next era of the German national team. No Reuter, no Stefan Reuter in this squad. Notably, he'd gotten injured before the tournament. Um, in the tournament itself, the Germans started off okay. They played Bolivia in the opening game. 1-0, boring game, Klinsman scores the only goal, a night most notable for Diana Ross missing a penalty from three yards and the goal's falling down anyway. In their second game, they draw 1-1 with Spain, Klinsman scores again, uh, Goikachea gets the goal for Spanish. In their final game, they play South Korea, they beat them 3-2, two from Klinsman, one from Riedler. They're looking like a team that could potentially go a long way. They've got the talent. They've got the know-how. They've got the experience. They go into the round of 16 and they beat the Belgians 3-2. The issue they're having is that they aren't defending the way German teams normally do. Voller gets two and Klinsmann gets another in that game. Uh, Gruen and, and Albert, Philippe Albert, formerly of Newcastle, with the goals for the Belgians. But in the quarterfinals, they get what is deemed to be the favorable draw. They get Bulgaria, kind of an unknown at this point. The great thing about this World Cup was we had a couple of unknowns in Bulgaria, in Romania, in a Swedish team that had done well at the Euros, but still weren't been taken all that seriously. Well, the Germans think that they're going to win this game comfortably. And when Lothar Mateus puts them one up on 47 minutes... Everybody thinks that's game over. Christos Deutschkoff scores on 75. And Jordin Leschkoff scores with a diving header on 78. And all of a sudden the Germans are out of the World Cup. And what should have been a big showdown between Germany and Italy in the semi-final doesn't happen. The Germans go home. And for those that read the likes of... World Soccer magazine at the time, there was a lot of talk about Bertie Volks. Would he be moved on? It was unacceptable. They've been embarrassed by losing to Denmark in ninety two. Now they'd lost to Bulgaria. They could accept losing to an Italy, an England, France, and Argentina, Brazil, the Netherlands even. They couldn't accept losing to these countries. These countries were seen as being below the Germans. And they should be wiping the floor with them. But They stick with Bertie Volks, And this is where we get to my favourite international team. The 1996 German team. Now, Bodo Wildner misses the tournament injured. So Andreas Kopke, Stefan Reuter, Marco Boda, Stefan Freund, Thomas Helmer, Lothar Matthias, Andreas Muller, Mehmet Scholl, Freddie Bobic, Thomas Hassler, Stefan Kuntz, Oliver Kahn. Mario Basler, Marcus Babel, Jürgen Kohler, René Schneider, Christian Ziege, Jürgen Klinsmann as captain, Thomas Struntz, Oliver Bierhoff, Dieter Ells, Oliver Reck and Jens Todd is the squad. And a couple of things to point out here. The number of Dortmund players is increasing. You've got Reuter, you've got Freund, you've got Zammer, you've got Muller, and you've got Jürgen Kohler. So just keep that in mind. You've still got a lot of Bayern players as well. I mean, you've got seven in total. But there's three Werder Bremen players in the squad. And this is where I became a Werder Bremen fan. Uh, Dieter Elts, the defensive midfielder, 31 years of age. He only had 17 caps at that point. Hadn't featured in either the previous three Uh, international tournaments I saw him and fell in love with him as a defensive midfielder because he was just phenomenal his ability to hold that team in their shape and win the ball cleanly rarely committing a foul rarely ever getting booked through his career just incredible timing knowledge it was almost like he had this you know when you someone says, oh, well, they've mastered their position or their craft, it was like he'd mastered his craft. And the closest player to him since is probably Fabinho, that prime Fabinho where he just had amazing timing, didn't have phenomenal athleticism, just had perfect timing, read the game well, anticipated well didn't do stupid things, didn't overplay on the ball, got it, gave it to lads that could do a bit more and held his position and kept others where they were meant to be. And what was so special about this German team and why I love it, first of all, Bertie Volks. I mean, the fact that he was still able to be the manager despite the failures of the previous two tournaments. But was how they played. So largely, how they would set up. When everybody was fit now, bear in mind there was injury, they had a lot of injuries through the tournament. A lot of injuries. But when everybody was fit, their kind of best 11, Kopken goal, Reuter at right wing back, Ziga at left wing back. Andy Brayman is now gone. So Ziga has taken over from him. So you've got Reuter and Ziga as the wing backs. You've got Jürgen Kohler, one of the greatest man-marking defenders ever, maybe the best ever after Costa-Curta. And you've got Thomas Helmer as more of a ball-playing, more cultured centre-back. And then you've got Matthias Sammer as a sweeper, a pure midfield player, not even a defensive midfielder, a, c- a central midfielder, a ball player, playing as the sweeper. In midfield, then, you've got Dieter Elts. Thomas Hassler and Andy Muller is the 10 in front of those two. And then up front, Klinsman and Bobic was the first choice pairing. Now, again, injuries meant they didn't play together a, a bunch in this tournament, but that was the first choice pairing. Anyway. In possession, Zammer would move into midfield. The wingbacks would push forward. Else would drop, not between the centre-backs, but just in front in front of them. Zammer would go in front of him, and Hassler and Muller would play as two attacking midfielders. So it would be, in defence, you'd have a two and a one, and then in midfield you had a one and a two, and then you had wing-backs supporting the two forwards. And they were so fluid in how they did this that... They just didn't get caught out on counterattacks. They could drop into any shape and be comfortable. Else could drop in as a centre back, the full the wing backs could push back, and all of a sudden you had a back five again. And Zammer could hold the midfield with Muller and Hassler. Or Zammer and Else would form a double pivot. The two attacking midfielders, Hassler and Muller, would drop wide and they could defend as a 4 4 2. So they had that brilliant flexibility that no matter what the gain state was and no matter what the transition was, they were always able to drop into a formation where nobody was out of position. Everybody was comfortable in what they were doing. There would be times where else would drop, especially when Marcus Babel came in for Kohler. And this added a new level of flexibility to them. Else would drop next to Zammer as the centre back pairing. Babel would go right back and Helmer would go left back. And both of them had played fullbacks in their played played as fullbacks in their club careers. So they were comfortable in those positions. Now Els and Zammer were not natural centre backs, but had that intelligence and that reading of the game that they could just sit in and make it work. Hassler and Muller were both attack-minded midfielders but weren't afraid of graft and could play as a double pivot. Ziga and Reuter could act as wingbacks but as wingers. So you'd still have a 4-4 four, four and a 2 up front. And that type of flexibility, that ability for players to play multiple positions and do it comfortably is why this team is my favourite team of all time. Because you could watch them play and the same set of players could shift into three or four different shapes and three or four different lineups in each of those shapes. Every player bar the front two who just stayed as a two, all the rest of them were comfortable enough to drop in somewhere else. You'd get moments where Zammer might be in midfield, Babel might be the middle centre-back, Reuter might be the right centre-back. And Andy Muller could be playing wing-back. And while it wasn't ideal, he was diligent enough and he was quick enough to make it work. The same thing could happen on the other side. Now, that got a little sketchier because when Ziga moved in, he wasn't the best defender and Hassler didn't have the foot speed, but they would make it work. And they had other really good squad players. like Marco Boda could come in, could play left-side centre-back, left wing-back, play left full-back in a three, Could play in a four, could play in a two or three-man centre-back set, could play left wing, could play centre midfield, could play as a holding midfielder. So bringing him in just added another wrinkle where you can plug and play him anywhere you want on the left side of the pitch. Stefan Kuntz could play up front or you could put him in midfield and he would run for days for you. Thomas Strunz was another one, very, very versatile. Stefan Freund was another could play centre midfield, could play as a wing-back, could play as a full-back, would do a job for you as a centre-back if you need them to. And all of these German players having that adaptability just made them such a difficult team to match up with. So in the group, they're in Group C with the Czech Republic, Italy and Russia. They beat the Czechs 2-0 in their first game at Old Trafford. Ziga scores, and then Andy Muller scores, game over. But during that game, Freddie Bobic and Stefan Kuntz had started up front, both got injured. And Jurgen Klinsmann had started the competition injured. So now they're without three strikers. So that's less than ideal. Not only that, Jurgen Kohler, who was their their best defensive player, and the vice captain in the squad, he got injured after 14 minutes. So this is when Marcus Babel came in, and this is where the ultimate flexibility of the shape came into play. When Babel came in, even though he wasn't as good as Kohler, at this point there wouldn't have been much between them because Kohler was kind of past his best, and Babel was really starting to come into his own, and establish himself for, for Bayern. Um but the Babel Zammer, Kohler 3-0 that offered incredible flexibility. And again, you had Reuter, you had Ziga, Els, Muller. Once they had that base, they had enough to win games. Even if they didn't have great goal scorers left with, with Bobic out and with, with Klinsman out, Bierhoff could hold the ball up so well. Uh, Klins could just run and run and run and give you so much down the channels. Um, they were happy enough to throw to throw things together. And I think Marco Bode, I think played up front for like 15 minutes in one of the games as well. Cause he, again, you could just put him anywhere and he would do a decent job for you. Uh, so after beating the Czechs and notably a Czech team with Pavel Nedved, Karol Paborski, Patrick Berger coming off the bench. This was sort of when Nedved and the, the, this Czech team announced themselves uh, to the world. Um, in their second game then they played Russia they beat them three 0 Klinsman's back for this game he starts up front with Bierhoff Zammer scores the opener Klinsman gets two they wipe the floor with with the Russians in that game truthfully that could have been six or seven Zammer was unbelievable and they couldn't because the Russians were playing a flat four four two they couldn't pick zamar up and Zammer had just freedom to go knowing that Babel and Helmer could just take the two Russian forwards 1v1 and, and didn't need to have him behind to protect. So he was able to play as an auxiliary midfielder for much of the game, which allowed the Germans to kind of swamp the um, the Russian midfield because Reuter and Ziga pushed up onto the wide players and that left a 4v2 in the middle of the park. And the Germans weren't worried about the Russian fullbacks causing them any trouble, so just great flexibility. In that final game, then they play the Germans. They rotate a couple of players. Thomas Stroons plays. He gets himself sent off. Um, but they were already through, so they didn't have to worry about it. They just eased their way through to the next game. Um, into the knockout stage, as we go. And 16 teams in the tournament, so eight teams go through. We're straight into the quarterfinals. And Germany take on a Croatia team that have been devastatingly good in the group stage. So much fun to watch. Players like Bilic and Stimac and Jarny and Stanic, Asanovic, Boban, Davor Suker. Again, a team announcing themselves on the, on the international stage. But Klinsman puts the Germans one up. Suker equalises. Matthias Sammer scores the winner on 59 minutes. A couple of changes for the Germans in that game. Thomas Hassler missed out. Uh, Mehmet Scholl came in and played in midfield and was very, very good. Klinsman got injured in this game. Freddy Bobic, though, came back and started. I think he picked up a bit of an injury to go off at half time, but Klinsman got injured in the first half, which was another blow. But the Germans just didn't seem to let it affect them. Into the semi final. They've got to make changes because Klins injured and Freddie Bobbage can't play. So they go with the same defense Reuter, Babel, Zammer, Helmer, and uh, Ziga. Thomas Hassel has been struggling with an injury. So he's left out. Stefan Freund comes in. So it's Freund, Els, and Muller. More of a defensive approach here. Memut plays off Stefan Kuntz up front. So. It was basically a back three wing-backs, a two-man double pivot of and Freund, Muller and Scholl sort of playing off of of Kunz. Alan Shearer puts England one up on three minutes. Stefan Kunz equalises on 16. Game plays out. 90 minutes is still 1-1. Into extra time. As everybody will remember, Gaza misses by... Centimeters, getting on the end of a chance, which would have given them the win, um, which would have given England the win. Goes to penalties. Uh, Shearer scores, Hassler scores, Platt scores, Streis- uh, Strunz scores rather. Pierce scores. He'd scored against Spain, and now he's more confident again taking penalties for England, having. Not wanted to take one after what had happened in nineteen ninety. Reuter scores, Gaza scores. He was always going to score. Ziga scores. Teddy Sheringham scores. Stefan Kuntz scores, and then Garrett Southgate misses. One of the worst penalties I've ever seen in my life. I've never to this day understood why Terry Venables didn't make changes for the penalty shootout. Why he didn't start to make some changes in extra time. Bring on players. There were going to be more confident penalty takers because if you look at that England team, after the players that took the penalties, the ones who didn't, Tony Adams. Now he would have walked up and hit it as hard as he could, but I'm not all that sure he would have scored. Uh, Paul Ince didn't like taking penalties. Darren Anderson, I would be confident. I would be confident taking the penalty. I'm not sure I would have been confident, McManaman though. So I still, to this day, have never understood why he didn't make changes. The Germans made changes. They brought on Hassler on 77. He would end up taking the first penalty. They brought on Strunz with two minutes left. He took the second penalty. And they, took, they brought on Marco Bodo with 10 minutes left. And apparently he was next up to take the seventh penalty. But Andreas Mora scored their sixth penalty, and it didn't matter. It was game over, and the Germans were through to the final. And in that final, they took on the Czechs once again. Stefan Reuter is now, I think he's suspended. Was he suspended? I think he was suspended for the final. Yeah, Stefan Reuter was suspended for the final on two yellow cards. Um, A huge blow. A huge, huge blow. Also suspended for the final, Andreas Muller. So you've got two key starters missing the final. You've also got um, Freddie Bobicet injured, but Klinsman is back once again. At half time, Dieter Els has to come off because he's gotten injured in the first half. So Marco Boda comes on and slots in. Thomas Strunton started at right wing back. So again, just a player filling in a position that's not his position, but doing a job and doing it well. Um Stefan Kuntz retained his place in the team next to Klinsman up front, Mehmet Scholl started midfield instead of Andy Muller and it was very much a, a 1 and a 2 in midfield that day, it was else with Scholl and Hassler playing advanced the Germans were very confident going into this game, the Czechs played a mad system they basically played a back 3 3 centre midfielders, 3 attacking midfielders and a forward a 3, three, three one. no real width in that team other than Paborski going from in to out on the right-hand side. No real width on the left-hand side at all. Yuri uh, Nimic played, but he played much more central. And didn't like to go out too wide. Um, Patrick Berger puts the, the checks one up on 59 minutes from the penalty spot. And it looked like they were going to hold out. But Oliver Bierhoff coming off the bench on 69 minutes to place Mehmet Scholl. Scores on 73 sends the game to extra time and then wins it in extra time with a golden goal on the 95th minute and Germany win the European Championships. And that was a great, great Euros. Football coming home, football's coming home was the the anthem. It was a great summer of football and it showed that England could put on a major tournament. Now, the issue is there's just too many teams in the Euros now. This was much better this was so much better. 16 teams, four groups of four, quarterfinal, semifinal, final. Don't need more than that. There isn't enough good teams in Europe to justify more than that. These competitions, this in the World Cup, it should mean something to qualify. You should have to be a good team just to get there, not just one that takes part. Anyway, that German team, my favorite international team of all time. We move now to the club I've mentioned a couple of times, who provided quite a few of that team, and that is Borussia Dortmund. So Otmar Hitzfeld takes the job as Borussia Dortmund manager in 1991 and slowly goes about building a team that would eventually conquer Europe. In 94-95, they win their first league title under Hitzfeld. Hitzfeld. They would repeat the trick the following year, 95-96. The first year, they won the title by one point. From 34 games, they took 49 points. But bear in mind, it was two points for a win, then, not three. Um, They beat Werder Bremen to the title by a point in the first year. In the second year, the Germans have now adapted the three points for a win, and they win the title by six points, clear of Bayern Munich. And you've got some just phenomenal players in this group. Uh, Julio Cesar, Brazilian defender, tremendous player. Played for Montpellier, played for Juve, played for uh, Dortmund and and then finished out with Werder Bremen. You have Stefan Chapuisat, the Swiss striker, maybe the best uh, Swiss striker of all time. He played the bulk of his career with Dortmund, but would go back and finish off playing in um, in Switzerland. You had Michael Zork, played his entire career with Dortmund. At this point was was past his best, would go on obviously and have, have great success as the Dortmund Sporting Director. Uh, Wolfgang de Beer was the backup goalkeeper. He spent most of his career with Dortmund, largely in a in a backup role, um, was very, very important to the squad, very popular, would go on and become the goalkeeping coach there under Jurgen Klopp and stayed in that role to 2018. Odd that Klopp didn't bring him to Liverpool. I've never quite understand understood why he didn't. Uh, Jörg Heinrich was in this squad. Now, Jörg Heinrich had a bit of a journeyman career, but had two very good spells with Dortmund. Bounced around a bit, played for Freiburg, played for Fiorentina, Cologne, Union Berlin, etc. Et he was a very good player for the national team too. Uh, Stefan Freund I've mentioned. He was one of those players that signed from Schalke, the big rivals, and didn't go over all that well with the Schalke fans, but he had great success with Dortmund and obviously would go on and play for Tottenham. Uh, Hiko Herlich, really, really good striker back in the day, had a lot of success with Borussia Mönchengladbach and then with Dortmund. And then kind of, I suppose, the big four in that squad. This is pre-European Cup winning season. Um you had Andy Muller, one of the greats, Fana- fantastic career, um, Eintracht Frankfurt, Dortmund, Eintracht again, Juventus didn't work out there, back to Dortmund, had his best spell, moved on to Schalke when he was past his best and nobody passing remarks, your then finished off his career with Frankfurt. Andy Muller had a fantastic knack of falling out with everybody. Um he was known to be an incredible pain in the arse and would fall out with his teammates mid-game, walked off more than one pitch, having had a tantrum at a manager, but had phenomenal ability. Great pace, was nicknamed Turbo Muller because of his speed, passing, touch, dribbling ability, goal-scoring ability. One of the great players, but an absolute arsehole by all accounts. Uh, Jurgen Koller, like I said, one of the, the best defenders I've ever seen. Um, had also had a spell in Italy with Juventus. Um, came through at Waldorf Meinham, played for Cologne, played for Bayern, went to Juve, was very successful at Juve. Unfortunately, also ended the career of won Marco van Basten with a late challenge that I don't think Kohler ever recovered from the, the stick that he got for that uh, and then finished off his career with Dortmund um, won, won everything you could win won the Bundesliga with Bayern won a Serie and a UEFA Cup at Juve uh, won two league titles the, the second one here and the later one that they won when Zammer was manager in 2 with Dortmund also won the European Cup won a World Cup won a European Championships though he missed most of those European championships. Karl-Heinz Riedler, fantastic player. Maybe the best header of a ball I've ever seen. Came through at Augsburg, moved on to um, Blauwest Berlin, played for Werder Bremen, went to Lazio, had some success there, came back to Dortmund, was probably on the tail end of his powers when this team was... In place, but was still a very, 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 very valuable player, and absolutely vital to everything they won. Um, moved on to Liverpool and finished off with Fulham. Uh, also had a, a, a good international career. Was part of the World Cup squad, but obviously had retired by the time the Euros came along. And then my personal favourite is Matthias Sammer, is one of my favourite players of all time. Revolutionised the game with how he played that sweeper role. And I, I would love to see that role come back into the modern game. That midfielder, that free midfielder, playing as a sweeper. Um, his career almost didn't pan out the way it did because he was East German, born in Dresden, came through at Dynamo Dresden, and then when the Berlin Wall came down and Germany moved towards unification, and the East German players were allowed leave and go and apply their careers elsewhere, went to Stuttgart, was very good, went to into Milan, hated life in, Germany, in Italy, came back to Dortmund, was incredible, and then a knee injury cut him down right at the peak of his power. He was a top three player in the world when that knee injury ended him. He'd been incredible for the two Dortmund titles, then the Euros, and then obviously the winning of the... Champions League that we'll get to. Um, infamously had a couple of major fallings out with the fans as well. Um, when they got knocked out by Bulgaria, he gave the fans the finger, and there was some talk that that might be the end of his national career. But Bertie Volks fought for him, and he, he was just phenomenal. Um, but back to Otmar Hitzfeld for a minute because. Although Bertie Volks was the manager of the national team, and and Germany had been playing it back three long before Bertie Volks, the Germans had popularized the ball-playing sweeper. The Italians played a defensive sweeper, The Bolt, Catanaccio, a real defensive sweeper. The Germans popularized the ball-playing sweeper, obviously, with, with Beckenbauer originally. But when Zammer did it, he did it in a different way to anybody else because he would play it with a lot more freedom. He would really embrace the idea of the Libero. Um, Ottmar Hitzfeld is, in my opinion, the most underrated manager of all time. So he has a decent playing career, plays for Basel in Switzerland, Stuttgart, Lugano, and Luzerne. Starts his managerial career in Switzerland with Zug, moves to Arrow, moves to Grasshoppers, and that's where he really starts to get noticed. That's where he really starts to have um, success. He wins, now he, he'd won the Swiss Cup with Arrow, but he wins two league titles, two Swiss Cups, and he gets himself the, the, the Dortmund job. And it was him who moved Zammer into that role, that defensive midfield role. And having Zammer in that deep role and then Andy Muller in a 10 role, that was basically the catalyst for the success the Germans would have. Um, one other player I actually should have mentioned when I was talking about the greats was Stefan Reuter. Phenomenal career. Another one that had uh, a disappointing spell in Italy. There was a lot of Germans went to Italy in the early 90s and just didn't enjoy it. So he'd come through at Nuremberg, went to Bayern, was there for 3 years, moved on to Juve, didn't like life in Italy, came back to Dortmund and had his best success in uh, in a Dortmund shirt, won 3 league titles, two cups, um the Champions League, was a two-time UEFA Cup runner up. Obviously had won titles with, with Bayern as well, but had much more success with um with Dortmund and obviously was part of the the 1990 World Cup squad and the 96. Euro squad, a very, very underrated player. One of, in my opinion, one of the great fullbacks who never gets talked about. Never gets talked about. Uh, he is the general manager of Augsburg now and has done an outstanding job there over the last 11 years, has built them into a regular uh, Bundesliga team, has survived a, a takeover and all that. They just they don't want to move him on because he's so important. But back to um to Omar Hitzfeld, after having such great success with Dortmund, he moves on to Bayern Munich, spends 6 years there, he's the longest serving manager in Bayern history, uh wins four league titles, f- uh three cups and a Champions League, also loses the Champions League final to United in 99 would retire, would come back out of retirement and manage Bayern again and win another league title when they were desperate, and then um, had a six-year spell as manager of the Swiss national team and, and did pretty well with them. For my money, he was the best manager in the world in the mid-90s. He, Him and Capello were neck and neck, but I would say what he did... Now, I think Capello in the early 90s, was the best manager. Probably till about 94, 95. Then it's Hitzfeld. And then Ferguson kind of takes over at the end of the 90s when United do the three in a row, win the Champions League. Um, Then, obviously, along comes Mourinho. Then along comes Pep. But I would say Hitzfeld, between... I would go Saki to 91... Capello to ninety four, ninety five, Then Hitzfeld to probably 98. And then Ferguson. Now, that's no disrespect to great, great managers like Marcelo Lippi, Arsene Wenger. Capello himself, who would go on and win league titles with Real, with Roma, and obviously then with Juve. But I think Hitzfeld just had a, had a three to four year window there where he was just... Incredible. Absolutely incredible manager. So underrated, so, un- so under-talked about. Um, so on anyway to the uh, the Champions League in 96-97, where we're going to finish up. And we're just going to do this, take a quick break, and go do the gossip, and that will be us for today. Uh, so Champions League of 96-97. Dortmund are drawn in Group B. Uh, with Atletico Madrid, Vidos Lotz and Steaua Bucharest, who back then were still allowed called themselves Steaua Bucharest. So Dortmund beat Vidzo 2-1 uh, at home, beat Steaua 3-0 away, beat Atleti 1-0 away, then lose 2-1 at home to Atleti, then draw 2-2 away with Vidzo, and then beat Steaua 5-3 in the final game to advance in second place behind Atletico Madrid on to the knockout phase. Again, there's four groups. Top two through in all of them. Only 16 teams advance. Sorry, only eight teams advance from the field of 16. There's none of this mess and we're having 64 teams in the Champions League. Nonsense. Um, yeah, Dortmund go through. They get the favourable draw. So the teams that advance... Augs' Atleti, Juve and Porto. Now, clearly, Augs' are the favourable draw there. Then it's Ajax, United, Dortmund and Rosenberg who come through as runner-ups. You could make a real argument, considering United's dominance in England and considering Ajax were not far removed from winning a European Cup and then getting to another final, that the runner's up side is stronger than the winner's side. Even though Juve are the defending champions here, um, so they get Augs Air. They beat them three one in the first leg at home. Riedler, Schneider, and Muller scored the goals. Sabri Lamouche scores the uh, the consolation for Auxerre. In the second leg, they go to Auxerre and Lars Ricken gets the only goal of the game, and they go through four one on aggregate. In the semi finals, they draw Manchester United. They beat them 1-0 at home. Rene Tredjog with the only goal of the game. One of the lesser-known players, I suppose, the best way to put it, in this squad. Very, very... Had a very, very long career. Um, Played from 86 all the way up until 2009 when he was 41 years of age. Played well over 500 games. Was a squad player for his entire time at Dortmund, but was just one of those players that when he was needed, he'd pop up and he'd get you a goal or something. He's probably more more known for his time at Hertha Berlin. I would say he was more of a regular for them than he was for ever was for Dortmund. Uh, so that's the first leg. That's at home at the Festhalle Stadium. They go to Old Trafford for the second leg. Now bear in mind when the Germans played in Euro '96, most of their games were played at Old Trafford. So a lot of them are very familiar with the stadium now. Lars Ricken scores the only goal of the game on six, on um, eight minutes, rather, and Dortmund get by United 2-0 on aggregate and make their way to the final. And in the final, they face defending champions, Juventus. The Juventus have topped their group. They've beaten Man United, beaten Fenerbahce, drawn with Rapid Vienna, beaten Rapid Vienna, Beaten United again, and then beaten Fenerbahce again. In the knockout phase, they would beaten Rosenberg, uh, 3-1 in aggregate, and they beat Ajax 6-2 in aggregate. And that 4-1 win in the second leg was one of the more stunning performances I've ever seen. So in the first leg, they win 2-1 away, but it's a very close game, and for large stretches, Ajax are the better team. But in that second leg, Lombardo puts them one up. Vieri makes it two almost instantly. Mario Melchia pulls one back. And then Amoruso and Zidane score two in two minutes. And Juve win 4-1. And Juve, like I said, defending champions coming into this have gotten themselves in a position where they're a feared team. Now the Juve lineup is Peruzzi, one of the great keepers. Perini, Chero Ferrar Ferrara, Paolo Montera, and Mark Giuliano. So Perini was decent. Not not a great player, but a solid player. Tink Pink Sabaleta, maybe, Aspi type. Very good, but not great. Uh Juliano for me underachieved as a player. Ferrara and Montero, I loved. Both brilliant for completely different reasons. Ferrara, just so composed, so elegant. Montero, a lunatic. Uh, the midfield is Deschamps, De, uh, Delivio, Yugovic, who's great, and Zidane. It's a diamond midfield. Deschamps deep as Zidane as the 10. Christian Vieri and Alan Boxic up front. Michelangelo Rampouli is the backup goalkeeper. and Luca Passata. Uh, Pasano, rather, is uh, one of the defenders on the bench. Taconardi, young Del Piero, and Amoruso also on the bench. Taconardi Del Piero, and Amoruso came off the bench to uh, replace Perini, Vieri, and Boxic. I can only assume that Del Piero was injured. I don't remember, but I can only assume he was injured. Uh, the Dortmund team, Stefan goal. You've got Matthias Ammer, Jürgen Koller, Martin Cree, Stefan Reuter, and Jörg Heinrich are the wingbacks. Paul Lambert and Paolo Sosa as a midfield too. Now, Paul Lambert's story about how he ended up at Dortmund for a year is mad. Basically, he his contract had expired at Motherwell, but back then... There was sort of an unspoken rule that even though the Bosman was in, if you didn't sign for a new club, you just came back and continued to play for your old club under the terms of your old contract. But he signed with an agent who got him a trial. I want to say at Ajax, but I don't think it was. Maybe it was at Ajax and got him a trial at Dortmund. He went to Dortmund and they said, yeah, we'll happily sign you. So he ended up at Dortmund for only one year and would move to Celtic after that. And spend a long time with Celtic, obviously better known now as a as a manager with Livingston, Wickham, Colchester, Norwich, Villa, Blackburn, Wolves, Stoke, and Ipswich. Now, funnily enough, up until he took the villa job, Paul Lambert was probably the best young English manager around. And after the villa job, he has just been an absolute travesty. Um Paolo Sosa in that midfield, another one of my Favourite players, he came through at Benfica, made the move to sporting, which is very controversial, but it was a way to get himself to Juventus, who had been trying to buy him for a couple of years, and for whatever reason, Benfica didn't want to deal with them. Had two seasons at Juve, and was then surprisingly sold to Dortmund. Had only the one season at Dortmund, like Lambert, went back to Italy to play for Inter Milan, had a time at Parma, Panacanaitis and Espanyol. He is the definition of a journeyman manager. Uh, Portugal under 16 team for three years. Since then, one year at QPR, one year at Swansea, uh, not even a season at Leicester, two years with Videoton in Hungary, a year with Maccabi Tel Aviv, a year with Basel, two years with Fiorentina, a year in China with Tianjin, a year with Bordeaux, a brief spell with Poland, a brief spell with Flamengo, and he's now the manager of Salon uh, When I say a year, though, like in a lot of these jobs, he's 26 games, 49 at Swansea. Um, he lasted at, at QPR only six months. At Leicester, he was there for three months, 12 games. Uh, videotani was there for a, a year and a half. Maccabee, he was there for a full season. Basel, a full season. Fiorentina, two full seasons. Uh, Tianjin, he lasted a year, 37 games. Bordeaux, he was there a season and a bit, basically, 42 games in total. Uh, 15 games of Poland, 32 games of Flamengo in six months. And now Salon he's taken charge of 16 games, took over in February. Um, He has had some success. He did win the, the... Hungarian League Cup he won the Israeli Premier League and then the Swiss Super League in back-to-back seasons but he's a much better player than he was the manager really really good player good ball winner but really good passer the ball was part of that Portuguese golden generation with Rui Costa and Fernando Couto and João Pinto and just a really good player really really good player Um, you've got Andy Muller behind Riedler And Chapuisat on the bench, you've got De Beer. you've got Zork, you've got Ricken, Tredstock, and you've got Hiko Hurlick. So off the bench came Zork in the 89th minute just to see the game out. But earlier in the game, Ricken and Hurlick had come on for Riedler and Chapuisat. Riedler had scored on 39 minutes to put Dortmund one up. He scored again on 34 Sorry, 29 and 34 um, to make it 2-0. Del Piero came off the bench. He scored on 65 and then Dortmund started to make the changes. So that's when Reedlick came off and Her- Herlick went on. Chapuzat came off on 70 and Ricken came on and on 71, with his first touch of the game, Lars Ricken scores one of the all-time great Champions League final goals, chipping or lobbing uh, Angelo Peruzzi from fully 40 yards, a uh, beautiful strike. Uh, Lars Ricken was meant to be sort of the next wave for Dortmund. He was the one that was expected to kind of carry things on, but just injuries absolutely crippled him. He Just always, always missing chunks of seasons with injuries. And by the time he was 28, he was basically playing with, bandages all over himself and knee supports and ankle supports and unfortunately it just didn't it didn't become the career it should have been he spent his entire career with Dortmund never moved on stayed loyal to the club uh, now works there as the youth coordinator just Dortmund have had a really good way of keeping their loyal ex-players involved in the club it's a very German thing Uh, But that was a great Champions League final. It was a really good Juve team managed by Marcello Lippi. A really good Dortmund team managed by Hitzfeld. Great players on both sides. Good football played. Munich, the old Olympian Stadion in Munich. Very, very unique setting. Great, great stadium. Great final. Great team. So there we go. That is our nostalgic walk down memory lane. We're going to take a very, very quick break and we're going to come back, do the gossip, have a quick laugh at West Ham uh, and then we'll be done. See you in a sec. Right, so Wolves have appointed Gary O'Neill as their new manager on a three-year contract after Julian Lopetegui left yesterday. I I don't know why on earth Lopategi left yesterday? If this is how he was feeling, why didn't he leave three weeks ago? Uh, it's. I think it's quite unprofessional from Lopetegui. If he wasn't happy with the situation, the situation hasn't changed all summer. So uh, from a Wolves point of view, you've got to say good riddance. I think it's a big downgrade in terms of the manager they're bringing in. He won 11 of his 27 games in charge last season, but he lost an awful lot of football matches. Gary O'Neill lost an awful lot of football matches with that um, Bournemouth team and was was backed heavily in January, which is why they stayed up. Um, but you're talking about a guy who lost 20 of his 37 games in all competitions. Six draws, 11 wins. That's not great at all. Now, they stayed up comfortably, so you give him credit for that. But I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if hopefully he gets a new a new manager bounce and they can kind of get a bit of confidence going. There is talent there. They desperately need to add one or two more players, though. Um, West Ham United, in moves that can only be aimed at annoying me, have agreed deals for Harry Maguire and James Ward-Prowse. I genuinely can't think of a worse way to spend $60 million than Harry Maguire and James Ward-Prowse. United will be thrilled to get rid of Maguire, but they're taking a 50 million hit and Ward-Prowse in no way is a 30 million pound player. I, I wouldn't pay more than 15 for him. He doesn't do anything. Takes a great free kick, a good corner. He's a good cross the ball and he's absolute trash at pretty much everything else. Um, I, I think Southampton have had their pants down there and I don't really know how he fits either. Like, I don't know where Maguire fits. Are they going to play a back three? That's fine. In which case you go Zuma, Maguire, Agard and you play a nice deep block don't know what success you'll have with it. Um, you don't really have... I, I suppose Emerson, Palmieri as a wingback is, is palatable. Uh, Souffal as a wing back isn't bad, but I would ideally want to be upgrading both fullback spots. Um, and in midfield, I mean, is it is it going to be Edson, Alvarez, Ward-Prowse and Paquette? Is that what you're going to do? That doesn't seem very good to me. I like Alvarez for you. I like Paquette. I think he's fantastic but I'm not really sure about the rest of it. Um, And then up front, is it going to be Bowen and Ings, or Bowen and Antonio? That doesn't strike me as a team that's going to even threaten the top half. It really doesn't. I don't see see anywhere near enough goals in that team. Lucas Paqueta is the subject of interest in Manchester City. He has a buyout clause, apparently, that kicks in next summer. But City of apparently been floating the idea of paying around 65 to 70 million and West Ham want more. Uh, Ross Barkley has completed a move to Luton town on a free transfer. Good signing for him uh, for them. Uh, good move for him. Alex Oxlade Chamberlain has agreed terms on a move to Besiktas. Best of luck to him. Matt Turner has joined Nottingham forest on a four year contract. um, he's talking and saying all the right things but I mean he's talking like he's the guy going there to be number one I think he's going to be the backup I do I think he's going to be the backup because I think I think they're going to bring in another keeper Um, so we'll see what happens on to the gossip Bayern Munich want to submit a new bid of 110 million euro including add-ons for Harry Kane just accept it to fuck Bayern and Spurs are still apart on their valuation. I'm getting very, very bored of hearing that. If Kane does leave Tottenham, the club will pursue Gift Urban in addition to another centre-back and midfielder. I'm not sure Gift Urban is ready to be the Spurs' starting striker, but he is uber-talented. Um, Tottenham and Arsenal are ready to battle it out for Douglas Luiz. That's from Football Insider, so we can just take it. That's garbage. Arsenal have reached an agreement with Brentford to sign David Rea. I'm not sure why that's being credited to Romano when it was the Athletic that broke that story. Uh, Saudi Arabian club Al Halil want to sign Neymar and plan to meet with his father. You best get the checkbook out, though, because he's all about the money. Neymar would be willing to leave PSG, provided they let him spend for Saudi Arabia, provided they let him spend a year on loan at Barcelona. That's written by Sport, which is basically a Barcelona fanzine. Everton are considering a move for Harry Maguire, with Manchester United interested in Amadou Hunhanna in exchange. Trash. Crystal Palace are closing in on the signing of Lewis Hall on a season-long loan. Love that for Palace. Like it for him. Good move all round. Manchester United are interested in Jean-Claire Tadebo as a replacement for Harry Maguire. I believe they're also interested in Benjamin Pavard, and for some reason I see them signing Pavard. Uh, United also intend to open formal contract talks with Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Go to Man United, be really poor for four and a half years, put together a decent six months and they will give you a new contract. That's just how it works. Uh, Kyle Walker has decided to stay at Manchester City, having used Bayern Munich for leverage to get himself a new contract. Real Sociedad want to take Arsenal Scotland defender Kieran Tierney on loan. If I was him, I'd jump at the chance. You've got no future. At Arsenal, uh, Arteta has played Tommy Asu and Timber ahead of you in pre-season. Even though Zinchenko hasn't been there, uh, Benfica have ad- sorry Barcelona have added a one billion euro release clause to the contract of sixteen-year-old German midfielder Noah Darvich. Um, Barcelona just do stupid things, so who cares? Chelsea's Italian under twenty-one midfielder Cesare Caisedi is wanted by Leicester and Genoa. My guess is he ends up at Leicester because it's easier for Chelsea to keep tabs. Netherlands forward Veghorst will join Wolfsburg on a season-long loan from Burnley. Um, Veghorst has done very, very well in the Bundesliga in the past. Obviously did very, very well with Wolfsburg. So it, it does make sense. Did he not join Hoffenheim? Yeah, he joined Hoffenheim, not Wolfsburg. He's gone to Hoffenheim. Yeah, anyway, makes more sense from there. Leeds have agreed the deal to take Joe Roden on a season's loan. I was hoping he'd get an opportunity for Spurs this year, but obviously not. Uh, Good move for him. Good move for Leeds. Interested to see if they still follow up their interest in Matt Phillips. I would say Joe Roden is a better player than Nat Phillips, so I think that's the smarter move. And that's it, folks. That's all I have for today. I've probably gone quite long. I don't really know, but enjoy uh, the rest of your day, and I will see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.